Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle and thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. And check us out on Apple, Google, and Spotify, basically wherever you get your podcasts. Hope you check out the podcast. For more, there's a lot of great episodes that we've gotten over the years as well as coming up. Check also check me out at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. There you will get things like the short film block review breakdowns that I do every festival, such as this one, the Atlanta Film Festival. And uh, there's a lot more on there if you go to uh, patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. This year was my fourth year covering the Atlanta Film Festival, and it, it continues to be a rewarding one. I'm really grateful. I was, I'm always been able to uh, go back ever since I started going in uh, 2019. And uh, this year was no different. This was the first year since 2019 that we did not have a drive-in component to the festival. So all of the screens were indoors, and uh, it, it, was, it was really great to get back to that and to feel like some normalcy was coming back to the festival, even though they are continuing to do the virtual program, and that really was beneficial to me this year because of the nature of my ability to cover the festival this year. It was um, one of those... It this this year was this year has been a bit different. I've in each of the film festivals I've covered, Sundance, Renegade, and now the Atlanta Film Festival, I've had to kind of straddle doing work as well as covering the film festival. Uh, this one was the one that was very clearly defined as basically having to go as much with my work schedule as I could to determine which screens I went to. And that's where the uh, virtual component really came in. If they didn't have that virtual component, I probably wouldn't have been able to cover it this year in a way that I felt like I could do justice to the festival. But was able to, and I saw about 50 plus uh, features and short films throughout the uh, 11 days of the festival and that was that was that was really gratifying to do um, there were some screens that of course I missed throughout the week but ultimately I, I got the most of the movies I was really interested in going to for one reason for one way or another and uh, a lot of them were done by screeners I only went to probably about seven or eight uh, in-person screens this year. I did all the short films in on virtual. That was just the best way to do it. And uh, this was a really great year. And uh, what we're going to do with this is we're basically going to run down some of my favorites and best of the uh, festival. And uh, it's, it's only going to be a few categories, but... Um, I've got a couple of interviews that I want to uh, I want to share with you, and uh, we're going to start with the best short film category. And uh, this I I saw five short film blocks this year, two that were 
uh, Georgia Filmmakers Exclusive, and then three others that dealt with things like caregiving, uh, experimental cinema, as well as just surreal, uh, almost uh, genre-based filmmaking. And at least the last, those uh, last three categories are included here. And uh, the third one is number three for me for my best shorts is Don't Go Where I Can't Find You, which tells the story of a composer who writes a piece for a loved one who passed away whom she thinks is haunting her house. And it's a way of connecting with that. I'm, I'm a big proponent of film music. I love when music is an integral part in the film. And I think that's something that this movie does really, this short does really effectively. And, uh, it was it was one that just really connected with me in a big way because of that. Second one is She Keeps Me from director Erica Orofino. And uh, I had a chance to talk to her. We'll share that after um, I go through my number one selection. She Keeps Me is the story of two sisters, uh, one of whom has um, mental health issues. Uh, she is bipolar. And one wants to go off and uh, go to college. But when something is revealed, uh, those plans seem to go by the wayside. Number one was a short film called Eternity on Loop. And this was, this was an interesting one. This is part of the experimental uh, short film program. And it is about... A one of God's workers who takes a vacation on Earth. And it's basically them describing their feelings on Earth. And it's, it's a use of images and sound that is really quite beautiful. If you get a chance to see it at any other film festivals, I cannot recommend it enough. And uh, with that in mind, I had a chance to talk to Erica Orofino, the writer and director of She Keeps Me. It was a late addition to my interviews, but I'm really glad I was able to talk to her, and I hope you enjoy that conversation. So the first thing I want to say is uh, congratulations for having uh, She Keeps Me at the Atlanta Film Festival. And it actually was part of the first short film block that I watched for the festival. And I, I really loved how it looked at mental illness and family dynamics and the, the challenges that come from that. So uh, first of all, congratulations for having it at the festival. Thank you. Where, where did the uh, inspiration for the movie come from? So I would say that I tend to really pull from personal experiences when I'm writing. And um, this film in particular um, is a story that's very close to me because I come from uh, an Italian family and um, I'm someone who has struggled a lot with mental illness. Um, I still do sometimes. And um, I have um, a brother and mother who also um, struggle. And so I feel like I've been on both sides of the coin. Like I've been 
an Alessandra and I've been a Lena before. Um, and so I was really interested in kind of exploring like both sides of that, like what it feels like to be somebody who loves someone with a mental illness um, and what it feels like to be somebody who struggles with one. Um, and I was really interested in showing both of that, both those sides. Yeah, I, I, I think that's one of the things that is uh, so impactful about the film is the fact that it does, it, and it, it doesn't, it makes it, it, it really shows the struggle on both sides. It, it really struggle, and especially, you know, as with somebody who, you know, with, with the main character who's so very much wanting to, you know, she's been looking forward to going off to university and going off to college and leaving, but at the same time, and so when something happens that kind of puts that in jeopardy, she, you know, her first reaction is naturally in ups one of being upset, one of being emotional, and then, um, and then something, and then something you you see something happen, and you see that there's that change in her, and just the real is it. It's it's one of the hard things about caregiving uh, that I think a lot of people who aren't who've never necessarily been in that position don't necessarily realize. It's like, on the one hand, you have these, this desire that you, you want to be able to live your own life, you want to be able to be independent, but at the same time, you, you can't, and that, that struggle was very, uh, very well, well observed in the film. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I think that's very apt. Like, um, I think that like, it's hard to describe the feelings of like being in that position, like being a caretaker. Um, I think that they're like part of the um, motivation for me to, to tell this story is that there are so many conflicting feelings about the, being in that situation. Like there's a lot of guilt if you put mm -hmm. yourself first. There's, there's also a lot of like, sometimes there can be like shame associated with it. Like if you are from like a European family or like a different kind of like a culture that kind of puts family over everything. Then if you're not doing that, then you feel like you're almost like bringing shame to the family or like yeah. you're not like performing your duty. And so I think for Alessandra, that's what she's caught between is like, how much do I put myself first and how, but, or how much do I need to put my sister before me? Mm -hmm. And, and in, and in the end, um, there was an earlier draft of the script where I actually had the ending ambiguous where you don't know if she stays or goes, but I felt like it would have a stronger impact if I had her choose something. And mm -hmm. so she chooses to stay. Um, and I think that having her choose to stay makes more of a point than mm -hmm. not knowing. And I prefer that actually. Yeah, I no, I I I I definitely would agree with that choice because I did think that the ending was quite powerful because of the fact that it really hammers home that it it ultimately hammers home just how difficult that that being a caregiver, being somebody who cares about your family, but at the same time has that has that part of you that you you. You want to be independent, but you understand you have to understand that you're not 
you're never going to be as independent as you you want to be. And I I think yeah the the ending is the ending was quite powerful with that. Um, were there any particular other than you know the the decision as far as what to do with the ending? Were there any particular uh, challenges that you came across when it came to uh, making the movie? Yeah, I would say like a pretty something that was pretty consistently top of mind was the portrayal of mental illness in the film and being very aware of the way that Lena is going to be perceived by audience members because I didn't want Lena, who's Lena is the sister with um, bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't want Lena to come across as like this totally irrational, just person who's doing things for no reason. And she's just like mean, or she's just cruel. And so um, I had to be very careful with showing like a balance between um, the behavior that she exhibits, but then also her own justifications and like it, all those behaviors coming from a place of like truth for her. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it, uh, part of what helped shape that this narrative for her is um, the scene towards the end where we see that um, she's when she has a psychotic episode and she's in the middle of the street naked and we see like that's I think like the most vulnerable that we ever see her in the film obviously she's naked mm -hmm. and um, having a break but like a psychotic break but um, it's it's the scene that kind of rounds out her arc a little bit because that's the moment where you really see how much she suffers yeah and um so i think yes like the portrayal of lena was like a fine line i think and the other thing was the drowning scene, the drowning scene because um the drowning scene <laughs> could have been like super gratuitous or um i, I we didn't want it to feel like extremely violent mm -hmm. um I, you know, I don't want to show on screen like a mentally ill person being like drowned by a group of people um, where uh, in earlier drafts of the script, it was all the friends who also took part in this. Mm -hmm. um, and then as we kind of started honing in on the themes in the film, it didn't make any sense. And it made much more sense to have it just between the two sisters. Yeah. Um, yes. And so I think mm -hmm. that was another thing that we paid really close attention to was just trying to be really delicate with the themes and the portrayal of mental illness in the film. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, yeah, I definitely think that scene, it, it would have, it would have sent the wrong message if mm -hmm. it had been the group. The fact that you, because of the fact that it is ultimately about the sisters and the fact that it's like, it's essentially, it's, it's essentially all of Alessandra's frustrations, all of her anxieties just coming out. And it's, you know, that's, that's what makes it so, that, that's what makes it such, such a wrenching film to watch. And it really was, um, it, it was, it was really something. I mean, I, you know, it's like, I, I'm an only child, but I do know people who, uh, struggle with severe mental illness and it's you know and I've seen it up close and it's not e it's not easy uh, it's and it's it's hard to 
it's sometimes hard to empathize with them. And um, I, I know that that's one of the things that I, I think one of the things that this film does so well is that you, you see her go through the entire, almost through the entire gamut of emotions that one has when a loved one is struggling with mental illness. And, you know, you, you have the, you have the empathy, you have the anger, you have the frustration. Um, and it's, it's just n not as black and white as anybody would ever make it up, make it out to be. So it was, it was, it was really quite something to be able to watch this movie. Thank you so much. I really, that, that's like all I've ever, like all I want to hear is like that, <laughs> you know, that's, that's the whole point is I'm trying to show the different shades that ex exist in between the black and white because it's never black and white. Yeah. And the, the best thing that has come out of um, putting this film out for me is hearing people from the audience come up to me and say like, oh my God, I really feel like you understand what I've gone through. Like this is me and my brother or me and my sister or me and my mom. And it's amazing how many people, you know, you, you, like, you feel kind of alone in your, in your story sometimes until you put your story out there and then it just connects everybody. And you're like, wow, all these yeah. people have gone through too and it makes you feel less alone was this the uh was this the first festival for uh for the film no um so the, the film has been so far um it screened at pendants film festival in toronto which is um and it won best canadian film there okay. and it's um it has screened it has screened in um a small town in ontario uh, called Hamilton, and it's going to Oakville, which is another town in Ontario, but it's it's also, um, I can't say yet what other festivals it's gotten into, okay. but it, it's making the rounds. Okay, okay. No, that's yeah. fine, that's fine. Uh, yeah, I I cannot, you know, I, I certainly hope people get a chance to watch this movie. I, I think it's, you know, and, and one of the things that... Um, one of the things that really I, 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 I feel like, you know, one of the things I know in my personal struggles with, I, I've struggled with uh, stress and anxiety and all that over the years. And, you know, sometimes when I've been put in a caregiver position, it's been, it, it's really flared up. And one, but one of the things that as I've been able to explore that more through me being able to point to positive uh, reflections on whether it's dynamics and mental between, you know, mentally uh, people who struggle with mental health in different ways, whether it's uh, portrayals of mental health. I, I think that's, that's one of the most important things I think uh, cinema can provide. And I, I think this film is a great example of that. So uh, thank you very much. Thank you so much for saying that. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, I, I definitely hope that people, if, if they're on the film festival circuit and some of the film festivals it plays, plays that do get a chance to check it out because I, I, it is really quite a rewarding, rewarding experience. So Thank you. I really appreciate that. <laughs> um, Next up is the best documentary. And uh, documentaries are something I always try to make a case of going 
of watching when it comes to the Atlanta Film Festival. I, I, I feel like this festival, more than anything else, uh, really provides some fascinating ones to uh, watch. And this year was no exception. I didn't get to as many as I usually do, but I, I think they did a really great job programming this year. So my, my top three documentaries for this year were Only I Can Hear, which is a short documentary, it's less than an hour, about uh, three CODAs, children of deaf adults, and how their lives are. And they connect at a week-long retreat with other CODAs, and it basically goes through their emotional processes of being the only uh, people who can hear in their family and what that's like. And I, you know, as much as I enjoyed uh, CODA this year's best picture winner, I, I feel like only I can hear just gets a little bit richer in discussing that process and we get a sense of more going on and we get a sense of just how challenging that that life is and it's it but also how rewarding that life is too and it's really a lovely documentary and I hope people get a chance to see it number 2 on my best documentary is Master of Light and it is it tells the story of George Anthony Morton, who is a classical painter who spent some time in federal prison, but as he comes out of prison and out of that life, he's wanting to see more black faces done in the way of the old Dutch masters that he studied in school. And he takes a trip home and in addition to, and he uses that trip not only to reconcile with his past, but also to paint his family in in that style. And it's it's really it's really fascinating to look at in the terms of artistic inspiration, as well as the way our outlook on family can grow over the years. And I I really found it to be quite a rewarding documentary. It's worth a it's worth checking out. But my best documentary at the festival this year was Refuge. And you can listen to my interviews with the my interview with the uh, filmmakers on the Sanxima podcast and the YouTube channel. And uh, that was a bit longer, so I decided to make that its own thing. It was it was great to talk to them about they start off telling the story of a really wonderful melting pot city in Clarkson, Georgia. And then it and then they were gifted this opportunity to talk to to get to see a friendship start up between a Muslim doctor whose family came here post 9-11 and former soldier who was uh, also formerly a uh, member of the KKK and the friendship that they that they uh, achieve is really inspiring and it's it's really a rewarding watch it's it's one of those documentaries that I just cannot get out of my head it's such a beautiful watch it's well worth checking out 
Before we get to the narrative features, I want to do some my my favorite acting performances of the festival. Number three was Dakota Johnson uh, in Cha Cha Real Smooth. There was some really lovely acting in that film, uh, but Dakota Johnson I think gave the best performance as a mother whose daughter has autism and she's she's really having to make big choices about what is best for her and her daughter in the moment. And I, I think that's one of those things that I really loved about the film. Uh, next up is Dale Dickey in A Love Song, which I miss at Sundance, but I really loved, and I could have included Wes Studi in a joint discussion with her because I, I feel like they're just... She, he's just as important as she is to the way this movie works. Um, Dale Dickey is a widower in this film who goes to meet an old uh, childhood friend, played by Wes Studi, at a uh, trailer camp. And there's tension as to whether he will show up. And then when he does, there's tension as to what's going to happen. It's really beautiful work by both of them. Dickie in particular, though, is tremendous, and she she is really warm and lovely in the film. The best acting, though, I, I think I saw at the festival this year was uh, John Boyega in 892 from the the uh, opening night film, and he, he does a riveting job playing a uh, former soldier who has financial issues and feels like he's at the end of his rope and has to rob a bank and uh, or at least hold up a bank. And the way Boyega plays the character, the way he allows us to see the char- see the individual as sympathetic even when this situation is unfolding and because of the way this situation is unfolding, it's really beautiful. It's terrific acting on his part. Uh, that brings us to the best narrative feature. And uh, my number three is my final in-person movie that I saw, The Murder Podcast, which is a wonderful comedy about two friends who decide that when their initial podcast seems to have peaked in popularity, they turn to true crime. But in doing so, they kind of bite off a bit more than they can handle. So uh, that that's a really fun comedy. I can kind of see that maybe coming to Shudder at some point over in the next year. And um, it's it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting to see how that is uh, received. I think it'll go over really well with audiences. It's really a fun, goofy comedy. Uh, it stays within the characters, but it's also just a bit crazy, and uh, it's it's a lot of fun. It was a great way to end my in-person festival this year. Number two is 892, uh, and it's the story of Brian Brown Easley. Uh, John Boyega is fantastic in this film. It's a terrific thriller. Uh and the way that the director, Abby Damaris Corbin, tells this story is just absolutely fantastic. And I actually had a chance to talk to her on the red carpet, 
and uh, we'll we'll be sharing that after I get to my number one favorite uh, best narrative feature of the festival, and that is Haya Wasim's Quickening, which is about a young woman in, of color in Canada who who's struggling between family and her own life, and. Uh, you know, it this was this was a movie that really floored me in unexpected ways. By the time that the movie ended, I I really I I was not expecting the way I would be impacted by this film by the end, and it was just really quite a striking film to watch. It was available on the virtual program, and it was absolutely lovely. That being said, I did say that I had a chance to talk to the co-writer and director of 892, Abby Damaris Corbin, on the red carpet. It was the first time the f- official red carpet had been done since 2019. I start off on the red carpet with just a couple of quick questions because I hadn't seen the movie yet. And I I didn't get my initial question on uh, the audio, but I start off by asking her the difference of between making a short film and making a feature film. I hope you enjoy that brief discussion. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I went to this tech conference and met James Cameron, and I immediately made a beeline for him. I was like, give me all the advice <laughs> that you can give me for making the transition from short film to, to feature. He said, it's the same thing. You're just doing it a lot more in a row. Mm-hmm. So you're making 11 short films instead of one in a row. Yeah. And it really is that. And I, I had a great team around me, and, and I'm really happy about that. What were some of the biggest challenges that you had in making the film during COVID? Learning to project from my mask. (laughs) Yeah, it's hard because everybody's siloed and Mm -hmm. you just have to find creative ways to make sure that your team gets together and is able to still find the unity and purpose in the midst of it. Okay. All right. Thank you. Pleasure. After the film, I went to the uh, opening night uh, after party and was able to talk to her again now that I had seen the movie more specifically about things in the movie. I apologize for the audio here. It was a really... The the audio in this was pretty atrocious, but I think I cleaned it up about as well as I can. The most important thing is you can hear the... Her, her answers to the questions. I hope you enjoy that. Now that I've actually had the chance to see the film, let me just say it's a wonderful film. Thank you. Uh, it was really tense, really, the suspense was just right, but also, like Chris was saying in the, like Chris was saying in the Q, Q&A, the humanity really comes through. Thank you. One of the things I really noticed is a strong use of close-ups and an emphasis on the characters' faces. Was that something that just that you had planned out from the beginning, or is that something that just came out when you were developing the film and just as you were filming? Uh, we planned it out ahead of time. We looked at a lot of Jonathan Demme's close-ups. Mm-hmm. He's the master of the close-up. Yeah. Uh, so my cinematographer, Doug Emmett, and I, we, we were pretty litigious in doing our work and our, our Yeah. Or disconnect yeah. based on how engaged we are with Brian. Mm-hmm. 
tremendous in the film. He, he really is. When I, I love that we, I love that we spend so much of the time with Brian and in the bank. Was was there ever a, was there ever a time where you were questioning whether to cut back and forth between conversations, or did you, you know, or did how much how much of you sing with him in the bank was something that you knew you wanted to do, and what was the tension between staying with him and going to the outside world? It's, it's a tricky balance to be to be candid. Um, because it, you want the audience to feel as Brian did in the claustrophobia, yeah. but also the audience has a breaking point mm -hmm. where they just can't take it anymore. Yeah. Um, so what we did is we tried to dance on the line <laughs> of that, sometimes successfully, other times, you know, um, but, but it was intentional. And the, from a script level, we wanted it to be a chamber piece where initially it's a, it's a violin and then other strings come to join and then the orchestra. So yeah. it starts small and then it opens up. Yeah. Okay. Um, when, were there any movies that you thought, I mean, this is obviously based on true story, you don't want to be too inspired by fiction, but were there any movies that you had in mind when you were developing the story as far as how things that you were inspired by, like you just mentioned Jonathan Demi with the close-ups, that's a great example. We, we really stole from everyone. Mm -hmm. um, I stole from Prisoners by Denny Villanoff, yeah. uh, Master. tried to highlight different movies in all of these different categories. So technically speaking, not all of these are completely accurate, but I wanted to highlight the ones that really impacted me the most. But that being said, my three favorite films here are ones that I do think I'm going to be thinking about a lot and really appreciating as the year goes on. Number three is Cha-Cha Real Smooth, which we already talked about with Dakota Johnson. And this is just really a lovely uh, comedy drama. It's not exactly a romantic comedy, um, but it also is great in how it approaches the the story of 
somebody who isn't quite sure what they want to do in their life in their 20s. And I mean, I, it's something I think more and more people can identify with. And this, the, the film really, Cooper, Cooper Rafe is the uh, writer, director, and star, does a really good job uh, capturing that. Next up is a short film from the Georgia fictional block called Glitter Ain't Gold. It's a really sweet story about a young boy who thinks that he needs a gold chain in order to impress girls. And he he works to make money to get the gold chain. He's he's got a friend who he talks to throughout. It's really just a sweet coming of age story. And all three of these are actually coming-of-age stories. It's actually kind of funny how that worked out. Um, but if you get a chance to see Glitter Ain't Gold at some point over the year at a film festival or in general, it's really a wonderful story. I, I, I cannot recommend it enough. Then my favorite film is Portraits from a Fire, which is a coming, another coming-of-age story. It's about a teenager who spends his time making silly movies and invite people from his reservation uh, to contribute and to watch it. When another teenager seems to inspire him to make something more from the heart, he, he's hoping that it will bring he, him and his father, who's been cold towards him over the years, closer together. Uh, the director, Trevor Mack, does a really great job of making this both a very personal film as well as a very interesting film cinematically. And uh, this this is a movie that I think is going to stick with me throughout the year, and I, I do think this could very well be one of my favorite films of the year, just in general. I, I really love this film quite a bit. So that brings us to Best Film, and these are three movies, uh, short films, and both short films and features, that really landed with me hard. And uh, the first one is one that I saw on opening day, actually, of the festival in the Careworn Cadences short film block. It's called The Bond, and it's about a woman who is pregnant in prison who is hoping to get her and her child into the daycare wing of the prison. And she does everything right that she, she's trying to do everything right that she can to make that happen. And uh, something happens that really takes that from her. And it's, it, it was such a powerhouse film. It's, and it, it's, it's one of those films that we, you know, where the issue of pregnancy and safe pregnancy is a significant one recently. And uh, there, there was actually a short film in the uh, documentary Georgia Block that kind of touched on the same subject, but in the real world capacity of women giving birth in prison and how dangerous that can be. And it just, it just highlighted just how accurately the bond got the emotions at work in that. And it, it, it was really quite, it was, it was really a wonderful uh, early start to the festival for me. Number two was from that documentary uh, block 
of Georgia filmmakers, and it's Bad Dream, which is a spoken word look at the dark realities of white privilege versus black truth and the stark differences in what somebody like me would have just be normal behavior that I could do and not necessarily have to worry about, but um, what black black people sometimes do have to worry about. And it is, is just a, it's very moody in the way it's shot and it's shot very minimally, but the impact is extraordinary. And it was one that really connected with me on the last day of the festival. The best film I saw this year at the Atlanta Film Festival, though, was Marcel the Shell with Shoes On, the feature-length version of a series of short films made by Dean Fleischer Camp. And uh, this mockumentary about a filmmaker who happens to be staring at staying at an Airbnb where Marcel and his grandmother live, it... Trust me when I say you are not prepared for the emotional impact this movie is going to have on you. It is really, in, in, aside from just being a really lovely comedy and animated movie in terms of the stop-motion animation, it is just a beautiful story about connecting with another individual and somebody you would least expect to connect with. And I, I just really was quite taken by this. And I, I'm so glad I got a chance to see it at the festival. I wasn't sure until I got my work schedule that I was going to be able to see it. And I, I, it, it was far and away the best film I saw at the festival. All of these uh, 16 movies I've mentioned, they're all completely worthwhile. Uh, most of them I think you'll start to see trickle out in the summer. I know 892, Cha-Cha Real Smooth, and Marcel the Shell are coming out this summer. Uh, any other film festivals, be it, by all means, uh, try check out some of these. It's, it's really a great selection, and I want to thank the Atlanta Film Festival, the Atlanta Film Society, the Plaza Theater, and everybody who works on the festival for giving me the chance to Cover it year in and year out. It's probably my favorite programming of any of the festivals I've cover, covered on a regular basis, and I am extremely grateful for the opportunity. That's going to be it for this episode of the Sonic Cinema Podcast. Uh, coming up this month, we also have an, another continuation in our established classic series, and uh, we're going to be talking film scores and dinosaurs in June. So I hope you uh, take a look at that. And this is, uh, this is Brian Scuttle for the Sonic Cinema Podcast. And uh, check us out at www.sonic-cinema.com. Thank you very much. <laughs>